Right. Good evening. I've cheered you all up, haven't I? <laughs> okay, just um, right at, at the outset. First thing I want to say is this isn't a particularly easy subject to have taken. And a few weeks ago I said through the year, and what would you like me to speak on? And he, he gave me two or three choices, and he said, oh, you could go for, for this. And I said, you know, being a great theologian, I said, I'll give it a go. Um, but uh, the truth is, um, I think as I get older, I try to less and less make Scripture fit with my ideals and my thoughts and try and see what's really there. And if any of you know Michael Butt, one of the kind of, he's almost, to me, he's like an elder statesman, he gets really fed up with my questions because I actually think he's a man who has a really good scriptural knowledge and I often ask, we do a study together, and I often ask him really different questions. He said, where do you get these things from? I said, but the more I read it, the more questions I have, not more answers. But anyway, we're going to try and give this a go this evening. Uh, at the outset, can I ask you to do one thing? Could you all just raise your right hand? Okay. Could you put your hand now on the knee of the person next to you? Okay. 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 Thank you. That served no purpose other than to make you all feel slightly uncomfortable as well with this. Um, but there is there is also a point slightly related to to where I want to go with what I want to speak to you about this evening. And what you just did, you did without questioning. And some of that is how much in our Christian lives do we just accept without any questioning? And I believe that God has given us thought and ability and understanding to question a lot of these things. And you might think, no, I'm quite happy believing what I believe. Here's where I, I come from, and, and Michael and I have got disagreements. It must be right. Okay. If I ask the difficult questions of myself and others, and I get to the answers, what I think I'm doing is get a better and better understanding of the God I profess to worship and of the faith I profess to follow. Okay? Which means when I'm explaining it to somebody else, I'm not just doing the kind of the stock Christian answer. I think I'm able to reason it out. And I will say to you, my experience in evangelism uh, may not be extensive, but through work colleagues uh, and people that I've had deep and meaningful conversations, there have been much more discussions and slightly not heated arguments. But being an Essex boy, if I do lose the argument, I get them in a headlock. Anyway. The other thing I'd like, just like to say right at the outset is some of the things I say may not sit that comfortably with you and I don't want to cause any offence, you know, and as an Essex boy, I'm not used to not causing any offence. Um, but it's just some of my thoughts. Okay? And I did say to you, and right at the very beginning, okay, if... Anybody here this evening, if everybody here this evening doesn't get anything from this, to me it hasn't been wasted because it was, I've actually enjoyed looking this up and doing some research on it. And if you think, I'm struggling a bit in my Christian life, here's my bit of advice for you. Volunteer to preach. Because okay? it will make you study and it will make you look at the word and it will make you ask the difficult questions. And if you say, I can't preach, then volunteer to lead your home group. Okay? It's the stuff that makes us study. And if you're anything like me, you don't need much of an excuse not to study at times. And even if you do, you go off the, the track quite quickly. So volunteer to do something, because it does make you look at it in earnest. Okay? And what I will also say, 
uh, right at the outset, is the more I read scripture, the less and less sense some of it makes to me. Okay? Now, I, like, unlike many of you, I wasn't brought up with this, so I came into this faith with a lot of questions. And as I've gone on, I think I probably have more questions now than I did a lot of years ago. But there are some things that are now given. In my acceptance of God as Father, in my acceptance of the Lord Jesus Christ, and of his plan for mankind. Those things are unwavering. But I have a lot of questions, and a lot of it doesn't make any sense to me. But you know, the older I get, loads of stuff doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know about you. I look at it, and I'm... Here we go. You're going to say, this is a cue for you. Okay? I do a reasonable amount of speaking in my work life, and um, I do sometimes like a little bit of audience participation, okay? just to make sure they're awake, or, or for the people I'm talking to, that they're not in a coma. Um, <laughs> but here we go. So I'm, I'm getting older. You're, you're saying, no, surely you're not. And I'm questioning more. And my life's about to enter another phase, so we're going to become grandparents in about three months' time. So that will change, and I've decided, you know, next year I'm going to give up work. Because, um, you know, when you're going to have a, a wife, a daughter, and a granddaughter, there's three of them to wrap me around their fingers. So I'm not going to have time for anything else. But I have loads and loads of things that don't make sense. Okay, some really simple things. You can nod if you, this kind of resonates with you. Why is it that when the batteries in the remote control are going, okay, they've gone, we push the, r- the buttons even harder. Okay. Here's, here's another one that doesn't make any sense to me. Fun-sized chocolate. How can it be fun-sized when there's less of it? Okay. Why does the dentist talk to you while you're there? Because you can't answer him, could you? Okay. Another one, these are just things I, I found. What are the, the kind of the things that don't make any sense to mankind? Why is it that when someone tells you there are a billion stars in the universe, you believe them, but when someone tells you that's, that's wet paint, you've got to touch it? Okay. Why are boxing rings square? And the last one is celebrities. Okay. Why do they spend so much time, so much money, and put so much effort into becoming well-known and then try and wear dark glasses so no one recognises them? Okay. There are loads of things that don't make sense, and the longer I've gone on, there are loads of parts in Scripture that don't make sense to me. Okay? But I do accept them, because if I, if I had to rationalise and understand everything, it would probably reduce my need for any form of faith. But they don't necessarily make sense to me. Okay? You know, in the past, you know, when you start out on the Christian pathway, after a very short time, you have the answers to everything. Okay? Particularly if you, the younger you are. Um, and Martha, I'll, I'll just pick on you a little bit, because Martha is the only person here who's heard me talk about anything in recent times in, in the youth sessions, okay? So she's probably just on her phone now, doing something. Else. <laughs> okay. But you're, if you're young in your faith, you get this grasp of what it's all about, and let's be honest, you have an enthusiasm, and you share it with other people. But actually, the more I go on, and I've said this before, in my experience, the Christian life gets slightly harder and more difficult, and I understand less of it, Okay? However, I just want to caveat that to say, at no point have I thought about ever giving up on it. Okay? And if your experience in church life is like mine, I'm sorry, you, and I'm really trying not to catch your eye. Okay? But, you know, sometimes church and church life will disappoint you. Okay? And we've all got experiences of that. Other Christians will let us down and disappoint us. I've never yet thought, 
okay, they might have let me out. I've never thought God has. Okay? And I've wanted to carry on regardless. And that's a really important thing. But also, when confronting things that I've not felt very comfortable with as a Christian, and yet seem to be there in the Bible, I've used a number of things in the past. So the first one I've used is avoidance. Okay? So I've pretended it didn't really exist, hoping it'll go away, and I'll move on to something that's a bit easier. Or I'll assume that the misunderstanding was just ignorance on my part. It didn't really mean that, and it doesn't matter. Or something will be really difficult, and I'll make up an answer from Scripture that fits my theology. Okay? I'm making it fit what I'm happy with. Sometimes when I've struggled with things, I've thought, I need to hide my confusion, otherwise I might have found yet another flaw in my faith. Or I think, well, I've looked at it, it was cultural, it was of the time, it doesn't make any difference, I don't need to look for any other answers. But, you know, I've got to these slightly more advanced years, it's your cue to say, no, you haven't, because you don't look at it. Okay, obviously not a generous group here this evening. Uh, but I do look at it and I'm happy to approach it in a different way because I think my view of God is now finally big enough for me to admit that I don't understand all of that and that doesn't negate his existence in any way. Okay? There are parts of the Bible, if we're honest, we just don't understand and we can throw at them that it's the cultural differences. We can ignore them. We can bring these questions to God though and ask what's him, what they mean. After all, there are a lot of things that were written down that never made it into the scriptures that we have before us. They're the words that God has passed down to us. There is so much more, but we do have to seek it. I think one of the the fallacies when we approach the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is that we've got this idea that the Bible is a book that fell from heaven and is 100% accurate and it's infallible. Okay, I'm Again, if that's what you believe, I just want to try and, if in some way, make you question some of that, because I don't think it's true. These stories, okay, the stories we read, the stories we teach our children and our young people, Martha, you can have your exam later. These stories, you know, they were written by humans. Now, we believe that they were inspired by God, but they weren't written by God. They were written by God through humans. And we know from our own experiences that even inspired people get things wrong. Inspired people have agendas and inspired people don't know everything. So, I just want us to look for a short time at these few verses. And actually, I thought it would be three verses and I've cut it down to one. Just verse two I want us to look at. So we've been doing this series in Samuel. We've moved through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. And for a recap, for those of you that haven't heard all of it, first thing we know about Samuel is, the book of Samuel, is that it wasn't written by Samuel. And it wasn't written at the time that these events were going on. It was about a thousand years before Christ when these events were taking place. But these books were written over a couple of hundred years, almost 400 years later. So there's a big gap. Many of the additions were added while Israel was in in Babylonian exile. So this means that there's a lot of things to consider here. But first of all, it means the authors of this text weren't there at the time. And for me, that just forces some questions in itself. So, verse 2 of 2 Samuel chapter 8. And just one other thing I need to say by way of apology. Short readings don't necessarily mean short sermons. So you may not get away too lightly. 
So this isn't an easy verse. Okay? However, what I do think we need to think about in context of this verse is what we know about Jesus, what we know about God, and what we know about the authors of this time when they compiled their stories. Because it's quite possible the descriptions of God committing these atrocities are simply not true. Because we end up wrestling with this issue. How can the God that I follow, the God that I believe in, the God who has changed my life, how can he do these things, and yet how can God also be love? It's it's one to wrestle with. So for me, I was thinking, well, rather we can accept that God didn't do these things, but if we accept that, we need to understand differently what's really going on in these verses. Okay? But in all of this, remember, we do have to take the Bible seriously. We can't just say, well, I don't like that bit, so I'll throw it out and I'll carry on with something else. But now we've got this, okay, we've got this new truth revealed in Jesus, that's through the New Testament, we need to reevaluate what's going on here when God is talked about in this manner in the Old Testament. And we also need to remember the name Israel means to wrestle with God. It's a defining characteristic for Israel. So, I'm guessing there, 2 Samuel, chapter 8, verse 2. It's about death, okay, and destruction. Now, if we look at things historically, okay, things have changed so much. If you just go back um, a few hundred years, our view of history is changed by the culture that we live in today. So if you go back, I was in Bristol a couple of weekends ago, there's this big thing. Anyone know um, Colston Hall? Yeah? It's a good venue. And it's, got, it's closed for a two-year revamp. They're going to rename it because the name Colston is obviously associated with slavery. But if you look at it, with much of Bristol, everything that was built on was from the proceeds of slavery. Okay? And we look at it now and think, this is terrible and this is outrageous. But those things were of the time and it was a different culture. And we're viewing it and we're judging it with the times that we live in today. So I want us just to think about that as we look at what went on here in this verse from Samuel. And also there's one other thing I want to say is, before we start, I read this commentary, okay? And I don't get paid for endorsing this, by the way. But by a guy called John Mackenzie. And it said that war was a normal state in the ancient world of the Near East. Some things don't change. It was inevitable that Israel would be a fighting nation. The land that they were convinced they were promised was strategic land for all of the surrounding nations around them. They didn't even own the land in the first place. They had to run out, kill or destroy the people that had already occupied the land. This was, this was just their MO, the way that they did things. And also I read something by a scholar of violence in the, in the Hebrew Bible who pushed the point a bit further. And, and he said, it's evident that without the use of force, the state of Israel would not have come into existence. In that time, war was how you accomplished anything. Okay? It was the day-to-day business. So technically, Israel was just like everybody else. Okay? Yet much of their violence was attributed solely to God, either by command or direct intervention. But in these times, kingdoms can only exist through war. (coughs) Many people who seem to be good are only good 
because they don't have the power to do the evil that they really want to do. We can all recall incidents in our childhood when one of your parents told you that you couldn't do something. And you such times you used to say to yourself, oh, you just wait till I grow up. Then you'll see, I'll do exactly what I like. And sometimes such statements are amplified. You know, when I grow up, I'm going to be charge, in charge, and then things will be different. Okay? I always remember this. You used to want to stay up late. Parents said you've got to go to bed. Big argument, big scene. They won. Okay? And you used to think, when I'm older, I'm going to stay up as late as I want. And the crazy thing is now, I go to bed earlier now than the time that they used to make me go to bed. Okay. But, you know, power is a test of our character. That, you know, we can do whatever we want and whenever we want. But, you know, what we choose to do reveals to us and to others who we truly are. If you look around the world today and in recent years, with enough world leaders that we know of to prove this point of what power really does to them and the characteristics that it brings out. So let's look at the power that David had. Now, for years, David had had very little power. He was put out into the fields to keep a small flock of sheep for his family. When Samuel came on the scene to anoint Israel's future king from the sons of Jesse, David wasn't even considered a possibility. They were instructed, his father was instructed to bring him out from the field. Now, there were times when David showed a certain amount of power and authority under Saul but he soon became a fugitive, as we've heard in, in recent sermons. Then his official power was taken away. Even his wife, at some point, was taken away from him. But this is years later. Saul is dead. David has become the king of Israel in his place. Now he has the power to do whatever he wants. Okay. Now, it might be helpful for our understanding of these events to establish the background for what's about to happen by thinking about a few relevant facts. First, the people and the places we talk about are those that surrounded the nation of Israel. They're not distant places and peoples, okay? but those who are near to Israel, who are going to Israel on Israel's past, their present and their future. Secondly, these are people and places that occupied the area that God gave to Israel, which as yet the Israelites had not managed to possess. Thirdly, the areas we're talking about, they weren't international superpowers, but really small kingdoms. This is a little bit like a history lesson, but I'll say I quite enjoyed looking at this. If you didn't, just bear with me, because it'll be over shortly. The Bible talks about superpowers like Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome, but these aren't what David and the Israelites are dealing with here. These are small nations surrounding Israel. To protect themselves and to promote their own interests, they either have to enter into alliances with other small kingdoms or they have to take them over. And fourthly, if we just go back a little into chapter 7 and verse 1, this is a time actually of relative peace. It's not a permanent peace, however, but at this time Israel's enemies aren't presently attacking, attacking the people of God or their king. The Philistines have tried a couple of times to nip David's reign in the bud, but they haven't succeeded. In this chapter, David's not on the defensive as much as he is on the offensive. And finally, just to think about, David is acting on the basis of this promise made in chapter 7. Okay? The promise that they would be able to take things on. When he actively and aggressively sets out to subdue the enemies of Israel and to possess the liberty and the land 
that God has promised. There's no command here to David, recorded here from God, okay? just as there's no crisis called by foreign aggression. Okay? But David had an overriding command, because I believe that David acts on the promises that God had made earlier to Israel, and on the basis of his previous commandments to Israel that they're going to possess the land. So David doesn't need to ask for divine guidance here because he doesn't need it. And he doesn't need it because it's already been given. David is now in power and he sets out to do the things that have so far been left undone. Which is where verse 2 comes in. Now this verse is puzzling for two reasons. Okay? Not just because of the death and the destruction. Okay? Firstly, the Moabites appear to be on quite friendly terms with David. David's family tree included Ruth, who was a, a Moabite. When it appeared much earlier on that Saul was going to harm David's family, they fled to him while he was at the cave of Adullam, as Ewan spoke about a couple of weeks ago, proving that I was awake and listening. It's an encouragement for you. And David's family sought protection from the king of the Moabites, of, of Moab. Now, there is a, a Jewish tradition that said the king betrayed this trust and harmed David's parents, but none of this can be substantiated. Based on David's dealings with his followers and some of the other kings, I think we can assume that David's quite loyal to his friends. So something must have gone terribly wrong for David to have dealt so severely with the Moabites, though we don't have any certain explanation of what that was. But, if like me, you could be troubled by the severity of David's dealing with the Moabites. Now, think if I'd been there, I'd have found it very difficult to carry out the mission David and the Israelite soldiers undertook. The very ruthlessness of it all seems harsh. It almost sounds on a par with some of the more, the more modern historical atrocities. These things do happen, but how could David and his men do something so similar? So I've got a really short answer for this, and hopefully one which will make a bit of sense at the end which you're all looking forward to. I can see in your faces. David is God's king. He's the king of Israel who rules for God. He's God's representative. These Moabites became the enemies of Israel, and therefore they became the enemies of God. As such, if you look at many of the other scriptures, they all deserve to die as an enemy of God. So the wonder isn't that two-thirds of them were killed. The wonder is that they weren't all killed, because that seems to be the model that's often there. But, you know, in the killing of the two thirds, perhaps David was sending out another message that any, re- any thought of resisting him or rebelling against him has got to be laid to rest. When I looked at this and thought, kind of, the two thirds of them made to lay down and put to death. Okay. Now, this is normally, if I was in my work mode, normally what I'd go off to say, of those two thirds that were run through with the sword, we could probably recover some of those, okay, and we could probably save them. And I could probably enthrall you, I'm using that term loosely, with how we might possibly do that, because it's kind of one of my pet subjects, okay. My children have been brought up with blood and gore, okay, and they love to hear the stories. And Martha, you're probably the only one that's heard some of them as well, haven't you? Okay, and look what it's done to her. But here it seems to be really, really harsh. And here's the bit really where where many of us as Christians will struggle with this brutality. How could the God of this universe, the God who created us in his own image, 
the God who takes the side of the oppressed, the God who is incarnate in the Prince of Peace, the God who took violence upon himself so his creation didn't have to, how could this God, how could he have so offhandedly just commanded genocide? How could he desire the death of innocence? And for many of us, those views are simply incompatible. And this story in 2 Samuel challenges our beliefs. And remember, this is just one of the violent stories throughout Samuel. So here we go. Here's one thing I think we can safely say as Christians. Okay? In no way am I, or are we, suggesting in any way that God is evil. Equally, we aren't saying that there's no such thing as evil. I think we are saying that whatever it is, evil isn't that which we call God. I think we can get into all sorts of arguments about who God is and if God could be restricted to our definitions and such, but I think when it comes down to, all, to it, for all of us, we all believe in a God that is inherently good. So whatever we come up with when this is over, it's not going to be because God is evil or does evil things. Also something I think we can all come to terms with is that Jesus is Lord. We accept that. And he came away, came to do away with an old system and to bring in a new system. And that new system is the way that we interact with each other. That's not up for debate. We are here because we call ourselves Christians. And so Jesus is the central figure in our lives. We can fully know who God is because we know who Jesus is. Everything we believe is filtered through this lens of Jesus. Jesus trumps everything else. So I'm just going to recap where we are so far, okay? just in case I've lost you. It's there in my head, it may not come out in my words. Okay? God doesn't fit into categories of good and bad. Everything God does is good, even if we don't understand it. The Bible is incapable of doing wrong with everything it says, so what it says we have to accept. And... This was just God meeting people where they were at this time. All of these justifications have one thing in common. They hold to the belief that both statements about God are equally true. He doesn't fit into categories of good or bad, and everything that God does is good. This might be seen as taking a biased view, that we aren't open to suggestion, but our biased view is based on real-life experience. And that experience is, and I'm hoping I speak for you all, and you can nod anyway, that experience is that God is good, that Jesus is Lord, and that we need to take the Bible seriously. That's our real-life experience. I don't know if, 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 like me, you as a Christian, get told, well, you've just got a very narrow view of everything, and anything that doesn't fit with God, you take the opposite view to. Now, the older I get, the more liberal I think a lot of my viewpoints become. But I can't deviate from the fact of who God is, who Jesus Christ is, and what we, what we have here in the scripture, we need to take seriously. So I think that's how I approached 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 2. Okay? I admit my biases. I acknowledge that I'm approaching a lot of these biblical stories with certain uh, presuppositions. Now, for some people, some people, it's that the Bible is true about everything it says at face value. For others, it's that God is good and wants his best for creation and that God is love. For my bias, and I'm trusting for yours, we acknowledge that everything, absolutely everything, 
has to be filtered through Jesus. We don't filter things through our belief in the Bible. We filter things through Jesus. And by having stated that up front, it might change drastically how we read and interpret and accept some of these stories. So here's what I'm suggesting. That if we are seeking to know God more and better, then we allow Christ to filter absolutely everything. We know God as he's revealed to us in Christ, and the scriptures always point us to Christ. 2 Samuel isn't meant to tell us about God and how he acted in history. If you want to know that, read Chronicles. It's meant to tell us about how Israel became a nation like a lot of other nations. It was meant to tell us about David's rise to power that eventually led to the need of Jesus in history to correct everything. There's plenty about God in there, but everything about God must be read now through who Christ is. Then we interpret these stories in a very different way, through that lens of Jesus. And finally, I believe stories like this are important because it shows us what it looks like to be a group of people who serve God but also want to pave their own way and go in their own direction and be like everybody else. Okay? Now, often you end up with a, a point that's very positive and you go away thinking, I enjoyed that. But we have to acknowledge and accept our own free will and that we often decide our way is so much better than God's way. We'll walk in God's way and we'll do a bit of ours. Okay? I'm trying not to catch anybody's eye here. Sorry, John, get I didn't work. But we, it's really, stories like this show us a lot more about us. It, it shows us the lengths that people go through to thrive, to be powerful and to be safe. And stories like this show us much more about our own weaknesses than they do about God's actions. You've gone quiet. Actually, that is all I wanted to say. So it'll be relatively short, to the point. I'm hoping that my ramblings make some sense to you. Okay? If nothing else, take away <coughs> that many of these things in Scripture we need to read and understand the history, understand the direction of travel and where God was taking people at that time and then apply it to ourselves and realise that we so often go off on our own tangent justifying it as walking in God's light and in God's direction. Okay? Because it's not easy doesn't mean that we're a great Christian. Because it is really easy, doesn't mean we're a great Christian. Okay? It is about following God's way, accepting that inherently God is good, Jesus is Lord, and we have to take the Bible seriously. And let's tackle the difficult things as well. And if nothing else, if I've encouraged you to look at some stuff that you would not normally read, and you'll turn to one of the faithfuls, like Psalms, and think, I'm going to be encouraged, these stories equip us to answer the questions that when we get asked about our faith and to share our faith with others, some of those difficult things. Okay? Because we're serving a God who we don't understand completely, and we won't, but actually we know he is good. We know he is faithful, we know he is just, we know he is true, and that for each one of us, he has transformed our lives. That doesn't mean he has blessed us with this fantastic understanding and knowledge. What it's meant is he's shown us something of his person and his character. And we need to accept that, tackle some of the difficult issues and share those with others. And perhaps 
We also need to be a bit honest about things we don't understand or things we do wrestle with. Shall we pray? Our God and Father, firstly, we thank you that you are the great I am, the one true God. We thank you that through your great plan, you have saved us. Let us always be encouraged and grateful, appreciative for this fact, that we have Jesus as our saviour, that you had a plan of salvation that included us. Thank you for your incredible and your wonderful love. Thank you that you remain faithful when we aren't. Thank you that you remain good when we aren't. Thank you that you remain true to us when we aren't true to you. But thank you that we have Jesus in our lives to help us look at things differently. May we have more of his vision, his heart, his love and his responses than what comes from us naturally. And may what we do in our lives in some way bring some honour and glory and blessing to you because you truly deserve it.